All right, well, good morning. And good morning to our viewers online. Happy Father's Day. Um, thank you to Mason, who did a great job preaching last week. He's only, uh, he's only 25, and he is uh, so much farther along than I was at his age. I was still a rascal at that age, um, really an unbeliever. You would not have wanted me as your pastor when I was 25. All right. So we're continuing on with our message series, Galatians, Free at Last, and today we're in chapter two. We're still talking about legalism, and we see in chapter two that legalism is a battle that never completely goes away. If Peter and Barnabas can slowly drift back towards legalism, then all of us are susceptible. We need to continue to remember that there is only one gospel. And to add to that is always going to enslave people rather than set them free. You just heard all of Galatians chapter 2 read, but I want us to look at verse 4 again. It says, so some, some so-called believers there, false ones really, sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. So Paul is talking about these false brothers, these Judaizers. He says that they came along to spy on us and take away the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus by making the gospel Jesus plus something else. In this case, it's Jesus plus Jewish laws and regulations. Paul says that this action would be like enslaving them. It would rob them of their freedom in Christ. Then Paul says in verse 5, he says, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. He refused to allow anything at all to be added to the pure gospel of grace. The reason Paul is so adamant about preserving the truth of the gospel is this. In this pluralistic, postmodern culture we find ourselves in, there is often a dissolution of absolute truth, an absolute standard of truth, meaning there is no longer an objective standard of truth. Rather, truth is relative. I have my truth, you have your truth, that sort of thing. Where Christianity is often seen as one option among many options for your spirituality. There's a lot to unpack there. I could probably do a whole sermon series on that, and I'm sure at some point um, I will address plurality and postmodernism more specifically. But since Paul is so adamant about maintaining the purity of the gospel, I do want to talk a little bit about what fundamentally separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world. Fundamentally, there are three things. So number one, and this is the most important. If you remember, only one. Wow, Lord's serving it up on a plate. <laughs> if you remember only one, this is it. It is grace. Grace. All right? All the other religions in some form or fashion teach a works-based ladder right, that one must climb essentially to earn their way towards God or towards being right with God. Christianity, on the other hand, teaches that God came to us. 
Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us before we did a thing for him. God didn't wait for us to get things right before he sent his son to die. In fact, God sent his son before he knew we could never perfectly fulfill the law on our own, right? We were dead in our sins. He sent Jesus Christ to save us. So back when I was younger, I was part of a young adult ministry uh, called God Search. And I remember um, we were at the University of Illinois in uh, Urbana-Champaign, and they would have uh, this event on campus called Quad Day, where uh, each student organization would set up a booth, right, and new students would come through and check us out. And uh, I was not content to stay at the booth, so I'd take someone with me and we'd go engage students as they were walking through the quad. And my typical tactic was to come up to a student and say, hey, God's been searching for you, right? So the idea, like that's the idea behind the, the name God Search. It's not that we were searching for him, it's that he's been searching for us, right? I remember doing that one time, going up to someone and saying, hey, God's been searching for you. And immediately he said, well, I'm doing my best to hide from him. Right? It was both funny and it was sad because how often is that true? But the point is God is coming after us. He is drawing us to himself because of his lavish grace. So number two thing that separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world is that other religions often have systems of rules to appease their God. Whereas Christianity is about a relationship with God where we are led by him and we are fulfilled in him. It's not an outside-in thing, it is an inside-out thing. It's not behave, be good, do these 10 things, don't do these 12 things. No, it's I can't do it by myself. Holy Spirit, come live in me, lead me. Guide me, direct me, empower me to do your will. Change me from the inside out so that my passions and my desires and the pleasures that I seek are not suppressed but fulfilled in the things that truly satisfy. I've always liked that the author John Piper calls himself a Christian hedonist. The legalist says to the hedonist, suppress that desire, suppress those passions. But God says, don't suppress them, fulfill them in me. He says, stop playing with mud pies that don't satisfy and join me in the heavenly banquet. So number three thing that separates Christianity from other religions is that no other religion in the world has an empty tomb. We are the only people who follow a leader who died and came back to life. Jesus, unlike every other leader of every other world religion, came back from the dead and is alive today. 
The resurrection is real. That is the essence of eternal life. Romans 10.9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is this very gospel that Paul is so anxious to defend. He wants to make sure that it is not polluted. It is not added to. That's why he says, we wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So I want to do a little experiment. This may be hard, but I want you to take a moment and reflect on some of the bad things that you have done in your life. Whether anyone knows them or not, just take a moment and think about them. Okay? Now, while you're doing that, this may be even harder, but also think about some of the good things that you should have done in your life, but you didn't. Okay? All the missed opportunities to show love and grace or forgiveness to someone to speak a word of encouragement, to pray for someone, to serve someone. Now this might be, while you're doing that, this might be even harder. Think about some of the, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, think about some of the hidden sins and even sinful thoughts that you've had in your life. Because if Jesus is correct on the Sermon on the Mount, even having anger or lust or unforgiveness in our heart is a sin. Any self-righteousness or pride or resentment, those two. Okay. Now, take a moment and reflect on the grace and the blessings, and the love, and the acceptance God has shown you in spite of all that crud you just dug up. All the ways that he has forgiven you, he has saved you, he has rescued you, not just from sin, but from yourself. Okay, now realize that God has shown that same grace and love and acceptance to others who may be vastly different from you. They may have committed a whole different list of sins. But these are people who, like you, are accepted by God only on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. No matter their sin, their background, their standing in society, or their appearance. If they declare with their mouth Jesus is Lord and they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they are saved. That is the pure gospel of grace that Paul is defending. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. It says, in fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, 
recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. So we see in verse 10, they all agreed that they should remember and support the poor. They knew that they had experienced God's grace and God's love in their lives. And not only were they wanting to tell others about it, they were wanting to show that grace and love in practical ways to those who needed it. They needed to see it. So like I said, once we really begin to see God's grace in our lives, it becomes so much easier to extend that grace and love to others. That is the reason we just did that exercise. We have to see God's grace is unmerited favor. I did nothing absolutely to deserve, God, what you gave me. And as soon as I begin to see that, it is so much easier to extend that grace and love and forgiveness to other people. Even to those people we previously would have judged or avoided. If we continue to see ourselves as better than others or less needing of God's grace and love and forgiveness, then the best we can do, the very best we can do is to be condescending and patronizing in our love of the poor, the addict, the homeless, or the outcast. Literally, that is how our Christian love comes across unless we see our absolute need for that grace first. But if we see that we are no better than they are, or better yet, we see them as Jesus sees them, that they may actually be closer to Jesus than we are because they realize their need for him, right? Then we're in the right place to serve them and to love on them and to show them grace. We may come to the end of ourselves and fall at the foot of the cross, but we pollute the gospel of grace when we don't stay at the foot of the cross and we don't learn to stay dependent on him. We pollute the gospel of grace when we drift back towards a reliance on the self. We may be tempted in a number of ways to think that somehow we can do something more to earn God's favor, or at least to stay in his favor. But that's not the case. Right? We just need to remain at the foot of the cross and continue to live in dependence on him, realizing that we need him and his power and his love and his grace every single day. It's interesting, the most, the, the, sometimes this is mind-blowing, maybe you knew this, but it's interesting, the most holy people I have known over the years, the people who were closest to Jesus, the people who exuded the aroma of Jesus, were people who saw themselves as the worst sinners. The people I've known who were closest to Jesus, most looking like Jesus, were the ones who had an absolute knowledge of the depraved person they were outside of his abiding presence. Paul himself said this in 
Romans 7, 21 to 25, said, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Right? Paul, right there. In my opinion, these people make the best pastors, they make the best worship leaders, they make the best leaders, and they make the best witnesses to the power of the gospel of grace because they know, they know where they would be without Jesus. So let's continue with verses 11 through 14. It says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? So in these verses, Paul talks about an incident that happened between himself and Peter. Peter was one of the chief followers of Jesus and was virtually the head of the church in Jerusalem in Paul's day. Peter and Paul had a strong difference of opinion, a confrontation of sorts. Peter saw that something Paul had done was wrong, right? And it was threatening to divide the church. So Peter was a Jew. Most of Paul's converts were Gentiles, non-Jews. Peter knew that God accepted non-Jews just as freely as he accepted his own race. And Peter had been associating with a group of Gentile Christians. He had been hanging out with them when suddenly he just withdrew from them. Apparently he did this because the Judaizers came along, men who taught that faith in Jesus wasn't enough and that everyone who wanted to be a Christian had to be circumcised and observe Jewish dietary laws in order to be classified as a true believer. Now, of course, the Gentiles Peter was with at the time hadn't done any of that stuff. So rather than be embarrassed by being seen with these non-Jews, Peter stopped associating with them. Right? That's why he calls him a hypocrite. He essentially drifted away from the gospel of grace and drifted back towards legalistic behaviors. So let's stop for a minute and think about this. This same thing happens in churches today. If we are not diligent, we can drift away from the gospel of grace and we can start embracing legalistic behaviors. So in my message a couple weeks ago, I had us look at ourselves to see if we have any legalistic tendencies 
this week, I want us to take a look at Life Church to see if we as a community have any legalistic tendencies. Okay? Are we guilty of being like Peter and being legalistic or hypocritical in our relationships with one another? Right? We don't want to do that. Some of these you're going to go, no, we're good on that. Others you're going to go, oh, we need to work on that one. Okay? That's okay. First step to change is honestly assessing where we are, right? It's like when I stood on the scale at one point, like, oh, I've got to change my lifestyle, right? Okay. So here they are. These are also on the back of your sermon notes if you got one of those. All right, number one. If you ask authentic, legitimate questions, I'm just going to, I put the uh, church, but I'm going to replace it with life church. Uh, If you ask authentic, legitimate questions at life church, is your faith or status in the community called into question? So in many churches, you can't ask legitimate questions, whether you're questioning theology or the decisions made by leadership or whatever, without receiving judgment, condemnation, shame, or simply a worried look. At my last church, I had some wonderful discussions with people over the years, um, particularly people attending who hadn't yet accepted Christ or who were just new to the church. Why do we believe this? Why do we do that? Um, Why did we make that decision? Why can't we do it this way? And it gets interesting when you create a culture of grace, right, that embraces everyone, no matter their background. So over the years, in various classes and groups I've led, um, I've had Mormons, Muslims, Messianic Jews, Wiccans, atheists, angry atheists, (laughs) Uh, people who've been involved in Satanism, Uh, those all made for some interesting discussions. Because, like, when you say you want to be a place where people are loved on and accepted right where they're at, this is the kind of thing that starts to happen. Right? So, can people, no matter their background or what they believe, can they experience grace and non-judgment, and can they be loved on right where they're at? Okay, that's number one. Number two, is there any room for disagreement in the church? Okay, like, is every issue an essential thing that we have to agree on? Or can we respectfully agree to disagree on some certain things? Right, certainly there are the essentials, like the authority of Scripture, the divinity and the humanity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, Right? All of those are essentials. But there are very educated, mature believers who disagree about a lot of different things. Like how the church should be governed. Uh, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will. Um, how the universe was created. How long did it take? Young earth, old earth, 
Uh, how and when is Jesus coming back? Women's role in the leadership of the church, and so on. So, um, it's funny, there's a quote that I love, and somebody, I don't remember, included it either in the application for this job that I'm, the senior pastor thing, or it's, maybe it's somewhere in the statement of faith, I don't know, but somebody put it there, and it's this quote from St. Augustine, which will come up on the screen. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. This is how we create a biblical uh, church that is also a community of grace. Okay, so the historic creeds of the faith, right? If you came from a traditional denominational church background, you might be f- familiar with the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. These were attempts to clearly define what are the essentials of faith. Like, what are the things we need to believe, like be on the same page about? But in the non-essentials, let's give one another freedom and grace to come to a different conclusion. And in everything, let's extend grace and love to each other. So that's the second one. Number three, are we creating a sort of caste system at church based on behaviors or even spiritual gifts? Caste system is sort of like a ranking in your, like, like, oh, I'm a top tier, you know, Christian, or I'm a bottom tier, I'm somewhere in between. Right? There are many church cultures that create a caste system, like a hierarchical class system, based on behaviors um, or spiritual gifts. So on, in terms of behaviors, uh, you are a top-tier Christian if you do these things and you don't do these things. Okay? Otherwise, you are a lower-class Christian. Right? They won't say that. They'll be like, oh, Bless his heart, you know, those kinds of things. (laughs) In terms of spiritual gifts, uh, and this typically happens in charismatic kinds of churches, churches that are open to all the gifts of the Spirit, you are a top-tier spirit-filled believer if you have um, these certain gifts, and you are a lower-class believer if you have these other gifts, right? That's, That's all wrong. We are all here but by the grace of God. And literally, that word gift tells us we had nothing to do with it. It was all grace. None of us deserved it. We need to be a community that lives in absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit and extends grace and love by default to everyone. Okay, number four. Oh, here we go. Are we insisting that people take a certain political stance at church? Okay, I know this is controversial, but I'm pretty sure Jesus is neither Republican nor Democrat. Mm. When the Zealots tried to get Jesus to take over the government and implement his way of doing things, he said to them, my kingdom is not of this world. If Jesus had a political party, it would be the kingdom of God. 
So, in case you're wondering, I will always use my platform and my influence to point people to the kingdom of God, not a political party. I'm pretty sure, and this is controversial, that in heaven there are both Republicans and Democrats. I have known very spiritually mature followers of Jesus over the years, people who absolutely love the Lord, and they voted on both sides of the fence. If, I'll even go so far as to say this, if Life Church stops preaching the kingdom of God and starts preaching politics, that is a red flag for legalism, and you should probably go somewhere else. Okay, number five. Does the church put an emphasis on who is in and who is out? And I talked about this uh, a few weeks ago in my message, Breakthrough of Grace, this idea of a bounded set versus a centered set. But do we as a church uh, take pride in being on the inside track with God? Like somehow we're better than other churches. Do the sermons and the teachings revolve around what's wrong with other so-called Christians and how they aren't true believers or somehow that we are better than them? Does Life Church insist on doing ministry all by itself or does it partner with other churches or other denominations or other organizations in the community? Are we extending grace and love to those who go to other churches in our community or do we see them as competition? Okay, number six, at church, is constructive criticism seen as rebellious? Everybody makes mistakes. We all have areas that we need to grow in. Leaders should welcome feedback to hold them accountable. Legalistic leaders tend to label any attempt to bring things to their attention as rebellious. And those who do bring things to the leader's attention are often gossiped about, they're maligned, or they're just simply marginalized to the outside of the community. Since the main goal of legalistic churches is getting people to follow their rules, then legalistic churches must control those who are in their congregation, right? Criticism can't be tolerated or else the rules themselves could be questioned. Number seven. At church, is obedience to the established authority seen the same as obedience to God? Because legalistic churches demand control and authority, they often present obedience to the established authority as the equivalence to obedience to God. So, obviously, children must obey parents, wives must obey husbands, congregants must obey the leaders, the elders, the pastors. In a legalistic church, more attention is focused on getting people to follow authority 
than getting them to experience God's love and his grace and then extending that to others. Sometimes following authority is seen as more important than listening to the Holy Spirit because there's always a danger that the Holy Spirit might have something, uh, might say something to you and get you to do something that we don't like, right? This leaves very little room for the Spirit to move. And it literally teaches people not to listen to the Holy Spirit for themselves. We don't ever, ever, ever want to become one of those churches. Okay, number eight. At church, is there a highly simplistic view of blessing and cursing? So a legalistic church culture keeps its members by telling them, you will be happy and successful in life if you follow these certain rules. You will be cursed or punished if you don't. And if your life is bad, it's likely because you aren't following these rules. And because of that, it's fear that keeps people coming back, not the good news of the gospel of grace or the love of Christ or the sense of family and a vision for extending the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 14 through 16 says, for all who are led by the spirit are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So those are eight ways um, to see, kind of on a scale, if we're being legalistic or not. Things for us to work on. All right, verses 15 through 21 in this Galatians 2 uh, says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So Paul tells us the basis for God's acceptance of us as sinners, or the basis is for God's acceptance of us for, as sinners. He talks a lot about the, wa- the law. He talks about the works of the law. He talks about being justified. He talks about dying to the law. He talks about being crucified with Christ. Okay, so we need to start with the question. So what is a law? 
A law is a rule or code we can use to measure whether or not something else conforms, right? We hold it up to something, see if it lines up. So some of you know um, one of my hobbies is that I buy, sell, and trade watches. Um, I started this hobby after my father passed and, uh, and when I received his watch. So it was like a catalyst for this, for this hobby. So with, with, an, with a mechanical or an automatic watch, um, before you wear it, you have to set it and you have to wind it. So I keep an atomic clock in my office at home and I use it to set my watches um, before I wear them so I have the correct time on there. And that's like the law, bringing something into alignment, right? You've also probably used a ruler many times to draw a straight line or to measure something. That's like the law. Or on the road, drivers are expected to keep their car between those marked lines. That's like the law. Without those lines, it'd be difficult to drive in a straight line. Of course, there'd be accidents happening all over the place, right? When it comes to moral issues, there are laws. Think about, um, think about the Ten Commandments. Okay? If we were just to keep those Ten Commandments perfectly all the time, then we wouldn't sin, right? Unfortunately, none of us can keep God's moral laws perfectly, not, not even those ten. We're constantly breaking them, no matter how hard we try not to. And every time we don't perfectly obey God's law, something happens to us. We come under guilt. We sin. Sin hurts us. Sin hurts others. Sin hurts the very heart of God. And when we sin, we usually try to justify ourselves. We make excuses for why we should be let off or why it was someone else's fault. But in spite of our best efforts, the effects of sin remain. The guilt remains. So in verse 16, Paul tells us that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul highlights the, the real issue here is that we are accepted by God as being just only by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. Somehow, God himself must justify us. He must perfectly fulfill the law because we cannot. And the way in which God has done this is through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. As we come by faith to accept that fact, God counts us as fully just in his sight. Like, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer guilty. Like, literally, God looks at you as if you have never sinned. Literally. In Christ, right, you have died for your sin. In Christ, you have had your sin judged, right? We are crucified with Christ, Right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You have had your sin judged. You have perfectly kept the law. You have been fully justified. And in Christ and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you now have the power within you to become your true self, the person God created you to be, the kind of person who is loving, 
and kind and gracious and merciful and giving and humble and sacrificial and joyful and full of peace. It is living in dependence on the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit, seeking to be filled and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing that we have no ability, absolutely none, to live as a Christian in obedience to God on our own. We will always fail if we try to do it ourselves. The point is not to buck up and try to get our life in order so you can be a model Christian. The point is to learn to live in absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit. Because, and I I will just speak for myself, on my own, I am a disaster. There it is. If you see any good in me, it's him. It's him reflected in me. As I guarantee you, if you met me when I was Mason's age, you never would have predicted I would be standing here preaching this message. Absolutely. It's all grace. It's all grace. At its core, it's this too. It's remembering who you are. You are his beloved child. You are absolutely loved by the creator of the universe. If you are in Christ, you are no longer guilty. God looks at you as if you've never sinned. You are not what you've done. Neither your accomplishments, nor your failures, nor your sins. You are not what others say about you. Whether they say nice things about you or whether they criticize you. And you are not what you have. Whether you are wealthy with a whole lot of money, right? Or you are wealthy with a whole lot of friends and family. All of that is ephemeral, it is a lie. You aren't what you do, you aren't what people say about you, you aren't what you have. You are a beloved child of God. When you were running from him, he was pursuing you. He was searching for you. He is yours and you are his. And his spirit now lives within you. And we can spend the rest of our days knowing that Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. Sure, we continue to mess up, but... The saints in the faith I have encountered were not men and women who stopped sinning entirely, right? I don't believe that's possible, this side of heaven. They were men and women who realized their absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit. And when they were younger, they may have spent days or months or even years trying to be self-reliant before they eventually turned back to God. Now, they don't waste a minute, right? They realize their sin, they turn to God, they confess their sin. If they hurt someone, they immediately go to them, they ask for forgiveness, and they remember once again, I am his beloved child. And that is the truth we need to remember. Remember. 
That is the truth, who we are in Christ, that changes everything. So next week, we'll be covering the beginning of uh, Galatians chapter 3, and we'll be discussing uh, the two roads that are in front of us as a child of God. The roads are this. Will we work harder and harder to try to please God and, of course, feel horrible when we fail to measure up? Or will we trust in what he's already done, who he says we already are, and then begin to walk out that truth? Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you so much that we are not defined by what we've done, by what others say about us, or by what we have. that we're defined by our identity in Christ, that each of us is a beloved child of God. I pray, God, you would help us walk in the freedom of the Spirit and show us what it looks like to live in dependence on the Spirit, led by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, walking the pathway of grace, where we're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, where there's no shame or condemnation, but only grace and love and freedom in Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.